part 20, or whatever part. Part 20? Is this the 20th sermon? I'm not sure. I think there might have been 20 or more sermons. Uh, I started uh, several months ago on a series on the law of God. How should Christians view the law of God? Should we distinguish uh, between various aspects of the law of God? Is there a core essential moral law that we are responsible to obey? And uh, is that moral law, this natural law, um, does it predate um, us and does it predate the New Testament era? In other words, does it go all the way back to Adam and God's revelation to Adam? And I have argued, yes, it does. Now, when I began this series of sermons, I, I began with a quote from Alastair Begg. Uh, most of us probably know Alastair Begg, and we like him because he's got a Scottish accent, and he can say something heretical, and it still sounds right, you know. That was a joke. Uh, Alistair Begg, I remember many years ago, uh, I think it was one of my the deacons of a church I used to pastor, sent me this link. He said, you've got to listen to this sermon. It was by Alistair Begg, and it was on the Fourth Commandment, and it was on KKLA or whatever that station is. It was all over the place, and so I listened to him going, whoa, I, f- I figured he, that's what his view was. And then when his book came out on the Ten Commandments, which... I don't know if it's back there anymore. I think every we bought them all up, but which I highly recommend. I read it and I go, yes, here is a contemporary man that's well known, that's willing to stick his neck on the line for the perpetuity of the fourth commandment. Here's what he says. He says, nothing illustrates the challenge in dealing with the abiding sanctity of God's law more than the sorry state of the Lord's day in contemporary evangelical evangelicalism, unquote. I didn't say it. Don't get mad at me. If you want to get mad, you can get mad at him. Uh, And if he's right, you're mad at God. Um, So what does he mean by the sorry state of the Lord's day? I think he means something like this. Now I say I think because I haven't listened excuse me, because I have listened to his sermons on the issue of the Lord's Day and I have read his book. He means something like this. Believers today don't treat Sunday, the Lord's Day, according to Scripture like believers used to and believers ought to. I think that's what he means. Something's changed, not just among Reformed Christians, which is true, but just in the broader evangelical uh, uh, context of I would say primarily American evangelicalism, but Europe as well. Something has changed drastically. In fact, the Lord's Day is a full day, is not respected as it ought to be. Beg will say that. It's not the Lord's hour. It's not the Lord's two services. It's the Lord's day. It is to be distinguished from other days that are God's, but they're not called the Lord's Day, like Sunday is called. Believers allow things in their lives they ought not to on the Lord's Day. Uh, I'm I'm writing on the the coattails of of Alistair Begg, so don't get mad at me. I'm telling you what I think he means. I I think he would say, you're right. Uh, Believers allow things in their lives they ought not to on the Lord's Day. For example... There was a day not too long ago when Christians did not allow their children to participate in sporting events on Sunday. What? It was unheard of. But now it's like, well, we gotta, we have need to develop them socially, and uh, and and physically, and this is a good social outlet for them. It helps develop them while they're probably privately or could be privately thinking, oh, my sporting event's more important than the worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I get it. Thank you for a good example. That, that's what we're kind of training our children to think. Something is more important for you than worshiping God. What is it? Softball, you know, or whatever it is. It's like, you know, people not even committed to the perpetuity of the fourth commandment the way the reformed confessions are, but people in bygone generations would go, you're from the future, aren't you? You're all messed up. 
Also, there was a day not too long ago when Christians would miss assembling with God and his people only because of sickness or a tragedy. We know this, right? I was actually raised in a home. The only time we wouldn't go to Mass uh, is if somebody was sick or if it was harvest and stuff had to be taken off of a plant because of rain coming or whatever. I could even say this, so I will. Since I can say it, I will say it. There was a day not too long ago when Christians treated Sunday as a distinct day, a day for public worship, a day for rest from normal weekly labor, a day set aside from the other days of the week. They, they, they planned their life that way. They revolved the week around the day. I recommend you do that, by the way, because if you don't, if you revolve the day around the week, you can think yourself what's going to happen. Now, what happened? Uh, Pastor Begg talks about that in his book, and others have. What happened? Of the various causes of the sorry state of the Lord's Day, his words, not mine, I think one is ignorance of what Scripture teaches about, here's a bad word for some people, the Sabbath. I, I just think it's ignorance. It's not necessarily people are just they're antinomians and they want to violate all the, you know, the law of God. I think it just people haven't thought through all the depth uh, of, of uh, teaching uh, that the scripture presents to us on this issue. They haven't thought through, therefore they're ignorant. And I was one of those persons. I'm not, no longer ignorant. I know everything now. Uh, and humbly so. But I think it's ignorance of what Scripture teaches about the Sabbath as an institution which began at creation. Now, I'm going to try to, I'm not going to try to, I'm going to argue this, that like marriage, like labor, those ordinances of God are creation-based. They're what some theologians call Creation ordinances, marriage and labor. I'm going to add to that Sabbath and the seven-day week was instituted by God as well. One day is to be set aside distinctly. Six days we are to do normal creaturely stuff, labor. Our Lord himself said this, and I'm quoting Jesus, so if you get mad at this, you're mad at Jesus. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. I remember driving uh, streets of Lancaster one time, <clears throat> excuse me, with a pastor friend of mine. He wasn't a pastor then, he's a pastor now, but he was a fellow seminary graduate at my alma mater. And he said, you know, you Reformed Baptist guy, you know, what, what about that Sabbath thing in your, your confession? And I said, well, uh, the Sabbath was made for man and not man the Sabbath. Man for the Sabbath. He says, where'd you get that from? I said, Jesus said, where'd he say that? And I said, Mark chapter 2, verse 27. I wanted to say, like, it's in your Bible. Haven't you read it? You're a seminary graduate and you want to be a... I didn't say all those things I wanted to say. But it shocked me. I'm going, dude... Uh, really? You haven't thought through those words of our Lord? The Sabbath was made for man. He doesn't say the Sabbath was made for the Jews. The creation of man and the institution or creation of Sabbath are basically co, uh, ex not extensive, coexist. You know what I'm talking about. They came into being basically at the same time, man first and then Sabbath. Man first and then Sabbath for man. That's the order our Lord talks about there. If you read the Genesis account, you know that's exactly what we have there. Both 
uh, were made, man first, then Sabbath. Hmm. You say, well, yeah, but there's those texts in the New Testament. We'll get there. You can't understand the, the texts in the New Testament properly unless you got a whole Bible view of things. So I'll be preaching from Genesis all the way through Revelation for the next 40 years or so. But what I aim to do in the next several sermons is to show you that the Sabbath began at creation. I think it's very clear. There are several passages that uh, there's no good way to get around it. Like marriage and like labor, Sabbath follows mankind to the end of our time on earth as it is. Now, some things might change. By the way, is marriage a creation ordinance? I assume you'll say, well, yeah, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 19, for instance, uh, in the context of divorce. And he, he, he says, from the beginning, divorce was not so. Wait a minute. Marriage was so, but now divorce is allowed? What changed? The fall into sin. So here you have a creation ordinance, marriage, that takes on a different look after the fall into sin and God's permission to allow divorce under certain circumstances. So you have a creation ordinance that takes a new look, takes on a new look in light of the fall into sin, and I would add this, and in light of God's redemptive purposes. Well, can't it be the same for Sabbath? In light of the fall into sin, the Sabbath is still with us, but it has a different look, not merely in light of the fall into sin, but in light of the redemptive purposes of God. And so I'll I'll try to argue that. It's going to take me a while to do this. Uh, I have way too much material on this. I've taught on this way too many times. I'm not going to do a 94-part series, but I need to take my time because you know what? When it's all said and done, I think scripture teaches this. And I want you to be blessed. I want you to be convinced. Yeah, this is right. Because if it is, then it's it's for our good. It has to be. It comes from God. It's a blessing. It's a gift. The Sabbath was made for us. It's not against us. Now, the Jews added, especially during the so-called intertestamental era, they added all kinds of restrictions. Jesus dealt with all those restrictions they added and rebuked them for it. Um, But it's a blessing. It's not a curse. What? I need to revolve six days, my six days of work around the Lord's day? What kind of attitude is that? in the words of Bob Newhart, stop it. What a terrible attitude to have. If God has given us a gift, we should receive it and say, all right, how do I steward this gift best for my soul and for the souls of others? So the work-rest cycle of a seven-day week began with God. God worked. God rested. Do you think that might have been an example for man to pattern his life after? Man who was created in the image of God, man was to work, man was to rest. Do you think God intended for Adam to work and then rest, work and then rest, work and then rest, work and then rest, ad infinitum for eternity? Or was there some ultimate rest that Adam could have entered into when he finished his work? The work-rest cycle is given to us by the divine example. We are image bearers. We are to follow in God's example. It is interesting that the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 4 identifies somebody who finished his work and then entered into his rest. And he does that, and we'll get there, uh, he does that after identifying two previous divine rests. One, when he cites Genesis 2, God's rest at creation. The other time when he cites Psalm 95, 
Israel's rest in Canaan, but he argues there that that rest in Canaan wasn't the final rest. And then he comes to this awkward text for many, and he says, and I think he's talking about the Lord Jesus, when he finished his work, he entered his rest just as God did from his at creation. So now we have the Lord Jesus working and resting. Why? Because Adam didn't work unto that ultimate rest. The last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, finishes his work of redemption and he enters into his rest. Guess what day he entered his rest on? He suffered, entered his glory. Suffered, worked, then rested the first day of the week, which the scriptures identify as the first day of the new creation. I've said this before. John Owen, that famous Puritan, said, pray tell, what could change this, the day uh, of the Sabbath? He said, why, a new creation. And that's what the resurrection is. But we're not in the new creation in its ultimate sense. And so since the divine Sabbath at creation ultimately pointed forward to an eschatological rest, and the rest in Canaan wasn't an end in itself. It was ultimately pointing to an eschatological rest in the eternal state. Since we're not in that, just as those pointed forward to that, so the Lord's Day does the same. So it is a weekly reminder that this ain't it. We got more coming. And we are to be very happy that God says, you know what? Throw all the stuff of the six days, just throw it aside. I'll, I'll take care of you. Don't worry. You can do it. You can throw it aside and concentrate on me like you don't on the six other days. And it's okay that you don't concentrate on me on the other six days like I call you to on the Lord's day. It's fine. You can't do it. You're called to something else. But on this day, give it to me. I'm Lord of time. I've structured time on the earth so that you can have a repose and just go, oh, I'll deal with that tomorrow. I have many pages in my sermon notes, and I'm not doing well. So this might be a long sermon. But the worst rest cycle of the seven-day week began with God, and it follows us. It follows mankind. We can't change it. I think they tried to change it in France in the 18th century, 19th century, and made a 10-day work week. It didn't last long. People started dying. I don't know if they died, but it just it ruined the, the, the society. We can't do that. You can't work nine days over and over and over again. Matter of fact, my wife reminded me of one of those, I think, French philosophers say, get rid of the Christian's Sabbath or Lord's Day, and you'll get rid of Christianity. I, I, I think he's right. So this... Work-rest cycle of seven days began at creation. It follows us. Scripture teaches that though the Sabbath began at creation, just like labor and, and uh, marriage, as a seventh-day ordinance, Sabbath began at creation as a seventh-day ordinance, Scripture also teaches us that when our Lord finished his work, he entered into his rest by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, on the first day of the week, the beginning of the new creation, and a sign that all those who believe in him will rise on that last day unto eternal rest. Okay? I already said that. I just said it again. Now, this morning, I want to consider uh, this. I want to consider some observations that tie the end of the Bible with the beginning of the Bible. You say, well, why are you doing that? Well, because I wrote a book on it. Uh, no. Um, that's part of the reason, but before the book, I preached the sermons in my living room. What's the title of the book? I forgot. Better than the beginning. Better than the beginning. Just think about that. The beginning's creation. Then we have the fall into sin. 
I'm going to argue there's something better even than the beginning. And the, what helps us understand the eschatological state, the eternal state, is better than even the created state, is looking at the bookends of the Bible, looking at the first three chapters and the last three chapters. Because what's amazing, and some of you know this, is that themes that first started in the first three chapters are actually picked up in the last three chapters, but it doesn't sound like the first three chapters in, in one major sense. The last three chapters are glorious and marvelous and wonderful and can't be altered as far as the state or condition of the eternal state. But the initial state of existence for man on, on the earth could be altered and was. That's why we have a Bible, by the way, to give us God's plan of redemption. So I want to look at, uh, I, I think there are seven of them, and I hope to get through them. They'll, they'll hopefully be brief. Uh, tie in the into the Bible with the beginning of the Bible. The first one is this, the devil who first appears in Genesis 3 um, using the serpent, remember that serpent, the devil of old. Revelation tells us who the serpent was controlled by. The devil who first appears in Genesis 3 ends up thrown into the lake of fire and all the people of God say, amen. <laughs> But if we hear these words in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up uh, on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The language of judgment here. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The Bible then has threads within it that deal with the effects of the devil's activity, not only in the Garden of Eden, but afterwards as well. You can see the activity of the devil throughout Scripture. It's conflict between the woman's seed and the devil's seed throughout the people of God and the children of the devil. That starts way back, but it ends. God ends it. A second observation tying the two bookends together is this. The first heavens and first earth of Genesis 1-1 become a new heaven and a new earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Listen to Revelation. That's Genesis 1-1. Listen to Revelation 21-1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now, Peter, the apostle, tells us that in this new heaven and earth, righteousness dwells. Are we in the new heaven and the new earth? Is righteousness only dwelling among us? no. God had exiled Adam and Eve from the garden because of their unrighteousness, right? They, they, they were excommunicated from the church, the special dwelling place of God among men on the earth, Eden, kicked out. But if we keep reading the Bible, and by the time we get to the end, we go, wait a minute, there's a new heavens and a new earth in which dwells only righteousness? Yes. Third, the tree of life first revealed in Genesis 2 ends up on the new earth. We, we, actually, in this series, we've dealt with the tree of life. But listen to these words in Revelation 22, 22-2, describing the eternal state. On either side of the river was the tree of life. Revelation twenty two fourteen adds, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. So this eschatological city, the new earth, contains the tree of life, which first appears in the Bible in Genesis 2, 9. That's kind of interesting. You think it's the Revelation passage is talking about a physical tree that we eat from and it has medicinal power to enhance our eternal life or something like that? I don't think so. 
Um, what do you think it's ultimately pointing to? And all the children said, Jesus. Thank you, Sean. Uh, fourth, God will dwell among all the citizens of the new earth. Okay, God dwelt among all the citizens of the first earth, Adam and Eve, right? There's a special manifestation of the presence of God there for Adam and Eve. But then they fell into sin. They were excommunicated. They were kicked out. God didn't dwell with them in the same manner, and certainly not with uh, their offspring. But you pick up the scriptures and you keep reading and you say, wait a minute, but God, God is dwelling sometimes with people in a special way. Uh, in the early chapters of Genesis, if you read it, you'll find these mountaintop experiences where altars were made and God comes down and communes in a special manner with Abraham a few times. But by the time you get to the end of the Bible, this special dwelling place among, uh, of God among men is universal, the entire new earth. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Well, wasn't God among his people before? Yes, but now this is only his people all over the earth. So it is the special, the eternal state, the new heavens, the new earth, is the special dwelling place of, of God among men. All of them that are there. That was true of Eden, of all the people that were there for not very long, Adam and Eve. But it hasn't been true ever since. But it will be true. So we have that connection. The whole earth will be a temple, a special dwelling place of God among men. Fifth, there will no longer be any death in the new earth. That's a good, that's good news, no death. In the new earth, we read, or we read about the new earth in Revelation 21.4, it says, there will no longer be any death. So that's where I got the words from, the Bible, the word of God. The first uh, creation had uh, at least the potential for death to intrude, and it did, by divine judgment. God had, th God had warned, and then God executed his justice upon Adam and Eve and the rest of us in light of Adam's partaking of the forbidden tree. Death came when sin entered into the world. Uh, Romans 5.12, and that's recorded for us in Genesis 3. But there's going to be, be a day when there's no death. So if death wasn't natural, it was unnatural, that's why it stings so much, because it's against nature, it's God judging our natures, um, if death wasn't natural, coextensive with creation, it came by virtue of God's justice executed upon Adam and Eve for their sin and ours in them. But there's one day going to be no death. How is there going to be no death? What? Something has to give here. How do we explain God's justice executed upon Adam and Eve and the rest of us, death all throughout mankind's history, and then Scripture says, but there's coming a day when there's going to be no death. God just willy-nilly says, okay, no more death. What happens? And all the Sunday school children said, Jesus. And in fact, we're going to see Jesus in all these things. Six, the New Jerusalem is described with a symbolic language often used of temples. Okay, we're at the end again, Revelation 21, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. 
having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gate 12 angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. We could go on and go on and go on and read all the way through verse 22. If we did, and I don't have time to do that, you can read it later, you'll see that this is symbolic language very often used, especially in the Old Testament, of the temple of God, the special dwelling place of God among men on the earth. And if we put all the pieces of the puzzle together, we have to say the new earth is a universalized temple. The new earth is a universalized church. The new earth is a universalized garden of Eden. The new earth is actually what God proferred to Adam upon his obedience. But he fell short by sinning of the glory of God. A a, a state, a glorious state of human existence that he didn't have by virtue of his creation. That God would have blessed Adam and all the Adamites, the rest of us with, if Adam didn't sin, but he sinned. And here we have the language of temple used symbolically in the book of Revelation to indicate something about the new earth. Namely, it's the place that Adam failed to arrive at because of his sin. So the question is, all right, so sounds like there's going to be people in this new earth. How'd they get there? They're sinners. Who takes them there? And all the Sunday school children said, Jesus, the last Adam, who takes his seed to glory. Why did he become one of us? To take us to glory. How does he do that? Through all the stages of normal human life, starting in the womb, He obeys. He sanctifies all the phases of our existence. And then he obeys all the way unto death and exhausts the wrath of God against us. And God rewards him with rest, resurrection, glory. By the way, that's why we're here and all over the world and all the time zones of the world. Christians are gathering on the first day, some of them denying the perpetuity of the fourth commandment. That's fine. They're still obeying it. At least they're going to church and they're doing it on the right day of the week and they're celebrating the same thing we are. Jesus rose from the dead. He got to glory. And scripture says, if he got to glory, all of his are going to get to glory as well. Sixth, I believe, Oh, so much good material I have to skip. Isn't that sad? Okay, I won't skip it. My wife said don't skip it. Uh, Here's the thing. When you read Revelation, the end of Revelation, you'll see this symbolic language of, of, that is often used of temples in the, in the Old Testament, uh, speaking about the eternal state. There's something else there too. There's water. There's rivers. There's tree of life. There's Edenic things. There's there's a mountain. There's Edenic things at the end of the Bible pointing toward the eternal state. Isn't that odd? Water, rivers. By the way, rivers flow uphill or downhill? Sean says down. Downhill, right? If there are rivers in Eden, what way are they flowing? Downhill. Therefore, this Garden of Eden must be up, right? A mountain. Um, Scripture, in two places in the Old Testament, calls Eden um, the Garden of the Lord, the Mountain of the Lord, and I forgot the, the other phrase. 
I said twice, and then I said two phrases. Maybe there's a third, third, third place. But scripture itself, looking back at Eden, puts it, perches it up a, as a high place. So, so that when we come to those altars on mountains early in Genesis, you think it's connected? Uh, this is why Christians go to mountain retreats. It might have been the first reason why people did that. I don't know. But this is symbolizing something. What, is, what are high places? They are special dwelling places of God among men on the earth. Uh, we are on a mountain today, right here in this place. We're at a high place. What do you mean by that? Well, we're at 2,600-foot elevation. That's not what I mean by it. I mean, we are in the place doing the things God's word requires of us. And he has promised to be present with us to manifest himself because, you know, he's always, or at least we're always present with him. He is omnipresent, you know. But he manifests, he reveals, he discloses himself through the means of grace to the people of God Whatever, wherever they meet, whatever mountain they're on, wherever they meet, even in, in a valley, becomes a mountain, becomes a high place, becomes a special dwelling place of God among men on the earth. We do have this quote I wanted to read from a book, The Dictionary of, of Biblical Imagery. Almost from the beginning of the Bible, mountains are sites of transcendent spiritual experiences, encounters with God or appearances by God. Ezekiel places the Garden of Eden on a mountain. Abraham shows his willingness to sacrifice Isaac and then encounters God on a mountain. God appears to Moses and speaks from the burning bush on Horeb, the mountain of God. And he encounters Elijah on the same site. Most impressive of all is the experience of the Israelites at Mount Sinai, which Moses ascends in a cloud to meet God. A similar picture emerges from the New Testament, where Jesus is associated with mountains. Jesus resorted to mountains to be alone, to pray, and to teach his listeners it was on a mountain that Jesus refuted Satan's temptation. He was also transfigured on a mountain, and he ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. Just We just ran through mountain theology throughout Scripture. Scripture tells us there's another mountain coming, though, and it far ascends all the previous mountains. Listen to this, though. These are my words. Jesus also designated a mountain in Galilee from which he gave the great commission to the eleven in, in, in Matthew 28, 16. You ever thought of that? Here are the words. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had, had designated. A mountain? Why didn't he designate a valley or some back room someplace? A mountain. I think there's something significant there. Jesus is both the tabernacle of God among men, and the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, and a temple. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up. And Jesus, as the tabernacle among men and temple among men, who raised himself up, also builds a new temple. Church is, the church is identified as a temple in several places. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24, contrasts Mount Sinai and Mount Zion in the context of the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. We've just gone to a different mountain. We're still on a mountain, though. God's mountain, God's place where he has promised to disclose himself to his people in a special way. God's people have gone from one mountain to another. I forgot what that observation was, but here's my next one. It, the, by the way, the more your blood is bibbling, the more you've read your Bible, the more connections you're going to see that I'm presenting to you. There's, 
And there's tons of connections. Have you ever seen that? I think it's a meme. I think I know what a meme is. I have no idea how to create them. But there's that thing you can see on the internet. And it's got a timeline. It's got Old Testament on one side, New Testament on the other. And then it's got all these colored lines that all connect. And it's showing you all the inter textuality that can be found in the scriptures. If you have a good Bible, well, all Bibles are good. If you have a Bible that has cross-references, you know, that's what that's illustrating. There's an old book, The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. There's only one brother old enough to remember, or two brothers, oh, three brothers old enough to remember, or four brothers, or five brothers. Oh, there's plenty of older brothers that probably remember that book, The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. It's in canonical order, that is Genesis, all the way to Malachi, Matthew, all the way to Revelation, and every chapter and every verse is in there, but not the words of Scripture. Instead, if you go to Genesis 1-1, it has a list of Bible verses that connect with Genesis 1-1. And then you go to Genesis 1-2, same thing, all the way through the big fat book. It actually used to be that fat, and now they have a new version. It's really big. There's all these connections. So the more you're un you've read the Bible, the more connections you're going to see. That was free. Next, the curse that was inflicted in Genesis 3 due to Adam's sin is no more. That's a huge one. Okay, remember, we're looking at the bookends. Genesis 1 through 3, Revelation 20 through 22. Creation, fall, new creation. The curse that was inflicted in Genesis 3, remember the curse enacted upon uh, the serpent, the woman, and the man is no more. Revelation 22.3, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. Now, due to not serving God, the curse came upon man and the earth. In the eternal state, there will no longer be any curse. So here's the question. I know about the curse. I know about sin. How in the world can God say there will no longer be any curse? And all the Sunday school children said, Jesus. He became a curse for us. In one sense, what I'm trying to do say this morning is that you know, the Bible's all about Jesus. And if you don't know who he is and what he came to do, you got to find out. you got to latch on to him because he's going to bring many sons to glory, Hebrews 2.10. So we have the Bible ending with a remarkable vision of God coming to dwell with humanity on a new earth. Not all humanity, only humanity connected to Christ. But the Bible started with God in the midst of his people in the Garden of Eden on a mountain with precious stones presence, present, with water flowing out of it, and in a context where Adam, the first prophet, priest, and king, was supposed to subdue the earth and fill it with other image bearers who were like him. But he didn't do it. But now we read at the end of the Bible that uh, what Adam was supposed to do it ends up happening, but not by virtue of Adam. So the question is, who does this? Who makes this happen? Now, there are at least two options. One is, we do. Who wants that to be the option? We bring ourselves to glory. We're good. We're Christian. We're at church today. All right. And we don't watch NFL football or whatever. We're holy. We're going to bring it. To, we're going to bring this sin cursed creation to glory by virtue of our works. Uh, if you're thinking that way, 
Um, we want to have a talk with you afterwards. That's the wrong answer, okay? How does the sin-cursed world... The creation itself, by the way, moans and groans, metaphorical language, longing for the full glorification of the sons of God. Why? Because, because then the effects of God's curse, which reach the earth as well, God uses creation to judge us at times, weather, um, earthquakes. That was a good point I was making, wasn't it? This is when the people sit in the pew pray for the minister. What was I saying? New creation. Anyway, Jesus is the answer. That's always safe, isn't it? But you see what I'm trying to do here? I'm trying to, here we have this over here in the early parts, and then we have this promised. How does this promised? By virtue of what God does through the incarnate Son of God, who assumed our nature for us and for our salvation in order to bring us to glory. But the work of the Son of God doesn't just terminate upon image bearers, sinners, the work of the Son of God actually affects the entirety of the creation. It's so, so, so the last Adam's work is actually, it requires more than the first Adam's because of the judgment that God brought upon the earth. So the end is actually the beginning brought to a better state of existence. What scripture calls the eternal state. Now all this to put this Sabbath question uh, into context. So you had the divine exemplar working and entering into rest. And I'm going to show you in later sermons that that's actually this divine rest, which is actually God going from creation to, we could say, providentially sustaining uh, that which he made, is actually an exemplar, an example, a divine exemplar, a divine example for creatures to pattern their, themselves after, work and then rest. But it actually is also symbolic of an ultimate rest, the eternal state, that was proferred to Adam in what I've called earlier the covenant of works, the reward of eternal life by virtue of his obedience to God's stipulated demands. Um, so the divine, divine rest is actually God saying, okay, you obey me and I'll bring you to a better place of existence. And if you don't obey me, you're going to be in a worse state of existence than your created state. And that's what happened. So that this Sabbath thing is actually grounded upon creation. And, and God's work. We'll see that in Exodus 20 when Moses is uh, writing to the ancient Israelites. The Sabbath didn't begin with them. It began with God. And it was instituted by God at creation. And just like marriage and labor uh, stays with us. Now, the, the preacher's trying to land the sermonic plane at this point. Some of you are going, yeah, you've been doing this for a while, haven't you? Trying to land the plane. Yes, I am. Um, I do have a lot more material, but I want to pick it up in second hour to basically preach Jesus to you. Okay? I try to do that every week. I try to show you how important the Lord of glory is in our life, in our thinking, and Scripture. And so... Um, so I'm going to pray. But before I pray, I'm going to do this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be brought to glory. All cleaned up, body and soul. And you'll enter into a state of existence better than Adam's created state, certainly better than Adam's fallen state and the state in which we exist now. You'll, you'll be um, in his presence with Great joy. Remember Jude 24 and 25? I've said this before. 
If you're a Christian, you know what joy is, the, the soul satisfaction and contentment that everything's right between me and God, something like that. It's not floating six inches off the ground, uh, you know, holier-than-thou kind of stuff. Joy, this happiness of soul that it is well with my soul. But what's great joy? That's, that's the question I always ask. Okay, I get joy, kind of, sometimes. Right? Are you always joyful? No. But if you're a believer, you know what joy is? Yeah, I do. Lord, I'm joyful. Help my unjoyfulness, you know? But what's great joy? I want to know. Because, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, joy, it's good. I like it. I like when I'm joyful, scripturally speaking. If I could have great joy, whoa, that would be marvelous. And here, scripture offers great joy in the future to all who believe in Christ. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Tried to make some Connections, connecting dots that exist in Scripture, showing the thread, the thrust, the the uh, the uh, goal, the telos uh, of Scripture, pointing to the eternal state. Scripture exists because sin exists, and you have a plan of redemption centering upon Christ. And the, uh, those of us who have come to Him, who believe upon Him, who have faith. We thank you. We want to serve you better. Help us. And those who have not, we ask that you would bring them, that you would open eyes, that you would unplug, unplug unhearing ears. We ask for your blessings on your word. Receive our final hymn of praise as well. Through Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen.